Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Here's a little snippet by one of the authors from the anthology. Hi, my name is Amy Agresti, and I'm thrilled to have contributed to Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. My essay is called Can a Writer Be Too Emotional? Asking for a Friend. And what I really don't have time for is writing, sure, but also figuring out how to use my phone properly. This is the first voice memo I've ever made. How am I doing? Anyway, read this anthology. It's amazing. Rodrigo Garcia is the author of A Farewell to Gabo and Mercedes, a son's memoir of Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Mercedes Barja. Rodrigo Garcia was born in Colombia, grew up in Mexico City, and studied history at Harvard University. His features as writer and director include Nine Lives, Albert Nobbs, and Last Days in the Desert. Garcia has directed for television series such as Six Feet Under, The Sopranos, and The Pilot of Big Love, for which he received an Emmy nomination. He also directed several episodes for HBO's In Treatment, which, by the way, I was obsessed with and watched every episode, where, in addition to directing, he served as writer, executive producer, and series showrunner. So I probably should have talked to him about how much I love the show, but I didn't. Oh, well. Garcia currently resides in Los Angeles with his family. Welcome, Rodrigo. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss A Farewell to Gabo and Mercedes, a son's memoir. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
I have to say, I listened to this book. I didn't read it. I listened to the whole thing in my car on a long drive, which was great because you could actually read the whole book in one long drive. So I felt enormously accomplished. And at the end, I was like crying as I was driving. I mean, it is so beautiful. I love how you did it. I just loved this book so much. So anyway, bravo to you. And I'm so glad you did it. Tell listeners, when did you decide? And I know some of what you talked about in the book is is your decision to even write this book. And you were sort of conflicted about it and if you should record it and if you should publish it. And talk to me about this becoming a book as you dealt with, you know, your your father's illness and eventual loss. And I'm so sorry. Thank you. You know, when and what I describe in the book is an initial period of back and forth where he's not doing well and they tell us he's got maybe months to live. And then suddenly that changed into, you know, most likely three weeks, you know, with these these best estimates that doctors can give you. So, you know, we all spent a lot of time at home. And as I describe in the book, you know, we were getting calls from people everywhere. They had friends from around the world and journalists and people began to gather at the door of the house. And, and then police showed up at the door of the house because so many people had gathered. And, you know, when you're essentially waiting for a person to pass, it, it's a very rarefied headspace you know there's really nothing to do and it's too soon to be terribly sad it's you know the days are like this jello very strange and it was all very rich so it was inevitable you know to think wow i should take some notes here to remember this and initially the idea was simply i had no idea i said i would take notes and maybe write up something that would be for my brother and myself and for our children and just to remember And, you know, I took those notes, like I described in the book, with a certain amount of of guilt and discomfort, feeling that I was, you know, essentially betraying the privacy of the family, my father's last days, etc. But since they were private, I, you know, forgave myself. And then when my father died, I sat down and wrote down very quickly. I, I wanted to put it all down while it was fresh and to write it quickly so that I wouldn't be, you know, bogged down with guilt and security, the whole, you know, the whole thing. And even when I finished that part of it, or what I thought was everything that I was going to write, I said, well, what, what can I do with this? You know, my mother who was still alive, she was not, you know, she wouldn't have looked well upon us publishing anything and, you know, breaking that line between the public and the private. And it was also too short to be a book, too long to be an article. So I put it aside for essentially for six or seven years. And then when my mother died in 2020, I realized what it was I wanted to write about, which was a farewell to both of them. And, you know, this discovery when the second parent dies that you you should expect because it's logical, but the feeling of it is quite, you know, concrete that when the second parent dies, this whole world dies, this religion that you grew up in, this set of beliefs that you agreed or disagreed, you know, you, you grew up in a church, basically. And so that's what I wanted to write. Anyway, this is a long, a long way to say, this is the long way to say I never planned a book. You know, it just, it, it became a book once I realized, oh, this should be the goodbye to both my parents and not just the writing of some, you know, the farewell to the legendary writer or the big artist. It's okay that it's long. That's the whole point is to hear you talk about your life and your book. I love it. No, it's great. You know, some of the moments that you describe, some of the in between while you're waiting and what you just referred to now were so poignant, even, you know, just having the hospice person there and like telling you and when you're waiting outside and yes, you should come and no, you shouldn't come. And just these, these 
moments in time. Now that you've sort of lived through this and then you you had to go through it with your mom too and have to say goodbye with like your cracked iPhone, which is the most sad ending. Very, very, very very 2020. Very 2020. Exactly. Yes. I said goodbye to many people on Zoom. It was like horrendous. So I relate. It's awful. Like, what do you, what do you sort of take away from like the ways we process loss, right? You you were so in it with your dad. You were there every minute. You were back and forth. You were flying. You were dealing with press. And then you have to contrast that with just a screen, right? Like where is the right, not right or wrong, but where is the balance? How do you, is there a right way to grieve? Is there an optimal situation? And like, how do we get our way through all these situations? Sort of a random question, but. You know, I think it's different for everyone and different for every case. You know, with my father, he suffered from dementia. So he lost his memory over, you know, eight years, but the last three, four years, he was more and more out of it. Certainly the last two years. So that, you know, we could refer to as, as the long goodbye. So it, it was sad, of course, when he died, but but there was, you know, we had, he, he, had been leave, he had been leaving us for a long time. My mom, you know, it was very quick. She, she sort of took a turn and, and 48 hours she was gone, but she was very much diminished by, you know, her age, her weight and, you know, 65 years of smoking. But also, you know, luckily for her, that also went quickly. It, you know, I, I, I'm sort of stalling to answer your question because, you know, I didn't really... It really didn't dawn on me that my dad had died till the anniversary, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, even though we went through all that and all the sadness and and all the mixed feelings and all the public stuff, and even by then I'd written a book that you know that that was basically in a drawer. But it wasn't till the anniversary when I thought, oh wow, that happened, incredible. And with my mom, it's been more. You know, I think about it every day. It's been a year. And, and, you know, you have these thoughts that are thoughts and feelings that are a little, you know, I feel, I feel that they're in some ways more present than ever. I feel that they become giants after their death. And this is not to, to idealize them because bad parents, as you know, can also be huge giants, you know, and dead parents and parents you never met, parents who left you. And, and biological parents that you may not have met, you know, the, these, they can be huge, you know, huge presences in your life. And I think because my mom was very present, very conscious, you know, throughout her last years, her brain was intact. You know, she is a little more, I'm a little closer to her right now, but I don't really have an answer for you. I think it surprises you, you know, I've, I've been doing well. And then in the last three or four days, for reasons that I can't imagine, I was thinking about her all the time. You know, so I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I think for every person it's different. Some people, you know, cry their heart out and move on. Others cry their heart out two years later. Others, you know, never have the feelings and then they go out and beat up some people in a bar. <laughs> it's Because, you know, at the heart of it is a notion that is totally normal and that we mostly accept, but that is absurd, which is that life ends. And a person that is, is no longer. I mean, it's, this is so evident. I'm sounding like an idiot. but when it No, you're happened, not. You're not it, at all. But when it has happened to you, you're like, wow. I mean, I remember, you know, when I walked into the room and my dad had just died, I thought, wow, that was so easy. I'm not saying it was easy for him, easy for us, but it, it really is, you know, like turning off a light, like crossing a door, like going through a veil. And yet it's everything. So, you know, it, it's it, you, you, the part of you just can't wrap 
your mind around it, you know? There must be a reason. Maybe that's the way it was programmed, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> like if we, if, you know, I don't. And, we, and yes, and we, we must live in denial of it. Otherwise, how do you get out of bed in the morning? True. Well, in addition to, you know, your really interesting and thoughtful, you know, writing about loss and grief, there's a lot also about being in a public family and being and where, how much to keep private, how much to expose and sort of growing up in that way. And I'm curious about your own career and, you know, this book aside, even with like your whole film career and everything, like how you get out from sort of the shadow of somebody who's super successful and growing up with that and making your own sort of way in the world. Tell me a little about, about that aspect, if you don't mind. Well, I think there were two facets to it. You know, when we were kids, my dad was not known until he wrote a hundred years of solitude, which came out when I was eight. And that was a phenomenon of a book, but you know, we lived in Mexico and some years in Barcelona with what was essential a very middle-class life. I mean, yes, everyone we knew were, you know, artists or people, who worked in advertising because they were artists making a living. You know, we didn't, my brother and I didn't know a single business person growing up, not <laughs> one, not one, nobody in business. And, you know, so that even when we lived in Spain and his reputation through the book and throughout the world, as the book got translated, grew, you know, we were still fairly protected. It was after all, you know, the late sixties and seventies. And he was a writer, you know, he wasn't the rock star. He wasn't the soccer star. And this was of course, way before, the internet, you know, I think, I, I think people have forgotten what fame was like back then. You know, it, we knew very little of how people lived. We often didn't even know where they lived. So that was, that was okay. I mean, obviously as you get older, 17, 18, 19, and you start to think about the future, then, you know, you have as a reference, someone who's very successful. And I think for children of very successful people, the risky thing is that a part of you unconscious, even if, you know, conscious that you know that there are no guarantees that you will have as much success. There's a part of you unconsciously, just because of the way you grow, you grew up that says to you, this is going to happen to me too. Hmm. And it's a little voice that you ignore. And then as the years go by, it doesn't quite happen because, you know, it's very hard for lightning to strike like that. And I've been lucky with a good career. I mean, there's been people who have had extremely frustrating, you know, careers after their parents had, you know, uh, enormous careers. But after he won the Nobel Prize in 1982, then I think his his fame, you know, definitely multiplied, and he was more recognized everywhere. And and then, um, but by then, you know, I was out in the world. I was out of college. I was finding my way. I mean, it would be it would be crazy to say that, you know, his fame and talent didn't, you know, didn't hover over me. It did. But I always had this feeling that, you know, everyone and, and artists included, everyone has baggage that they need to deal with. You know, my baggage was very acceptable. Yes, there is the ghost of the great artist, but I also had a good father. There are people who have a terrible father who may be a great artist or not even that. So for me, all in all, in the balance, you know, my father was very family oriented. He always worked in the house, as I describe in the book. He worked every morning from nine to two. And, you know, so it, we had lunch together every day. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't some jet setting lifestyle. I remember once there was a girl who was in high school with us, with my brother and I, and she came to eat 
to lunch at the house one day. And when she got home, her mother said to her, oh, you met the author. What was he like? She said she thought about it for a moment and she said, oh, well, he was this man eating soup. (laughs) Because we were seated in the kitchen having lunch, eating soup. I mean, you know, it's not it's not all, you know, diamonds. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. So to make a long story short, it's always been a mixture. Yes, the success was the stature that, you know, like like I say in the book, the, the biggest difficulty is that it creates many different gabos. Some are my dad when I was little, my dad when I was a teenager, my dad when I was a grown-up. Some was the dad at home. Some was the very famous dad. Some was the super famous dad. You know, and when people say things to you like, oh, how, I remember now yesterday someone said to me, I remembered yesterday that someone once said to me, how does it feel that your dad is one of the great authors of the 20th century? I was like, make that a double vodka, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's, someone sent me a tweet yesterday, just to give you an idea of the things that sometimes sort of, you know, remind you of the stature of things. Someone sent me a tweet yesterday for, that Mia Farrow tweeted. And she said, what is the best novel you've read? not including a hundred years of solitude. So it's like, okay. I mean, it's like, wow, you know, this is this. So anyway. Wow. And you described in the book, the trance like state that your dad would get into while writing. Tell me a little more about that. You said like you would talk to him and say, you're not even like hearing me. And he would just kind of look through you. 
Yeah, I mean, it is, and I say that in the book, he's, you know, his his concentration, you know, I, I suffer a little bit from attention deficit. So for me to watch that now, you know, he would really go there and, and become totally entranced. You know, you would walk into his office, especially when I was a kid, when he was still smoking, he quit soon after, you know, he'd have a disgusting ashtray full of of cigarette butts and a cigarette going and another one going in the other hand writing at super speed with basically two or three fingers because he never had any. I mean, that the sound of the typewriter is is one of the musics of my childhood. But yeah, you'd go in there and say, you know, mom wants to know if we're going to go to this thing tonight or not. And he'd, he'd look at you. What do you think? <laughs> and he's still. And then you'd leave. And he'd stay there and finally he'd turn around and keep writing. So, I mean, I did grow up thinking that with that level of concentration, one could achieve anything. I mean, it was just so focused and then to cut and then, and then to cut it and then to shut it off at 2 PM and, you know, to try to rest his brain, he would force himself to do that. Part of ADHD though, is this hyper-focus. I'm well aware, Yeah, you know, you, you get yeah. so into something and you like everything else just fades away. Yeah, no, I, I have, I have the other flavor, which is after ever after 10 minutes i have to change the channel of my life you know what i mean it's like i i can't sit for more than 10 minutes i mean i do when i have to yeah no it's it was remarkable to watch my brother has it he inherited some of it he can he's an artist and he can sit down and draw for five hours and never look up wow well did it help you to get this book out into the world like do you feel like you've made some sort of peace with the events that have happened or do you feel more connected to your parents or like, do you just, do you feel like it's helped you? Yeah. All of the above. I mean, just by, you know, having to write stuff that just having to put down, not just the events, but your feelings about it and the very fact of going public with it. And then, you know, the perspective, like I said, I sat with most of it for years until my mother died. So then having to go back to sort of revise that and you know, incorporated to what I wrote about my mother, you know, made me live through it again. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that, that I feel is some of the stuff we started off, you know, by talking about, I feel that, you know, the dead are not dead. Even, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but that's what I, I feel that the dead are not dead and that they become these big figures and, and you do understand them more. Doesn't mean your frustrations, your angers with whatever issues are not there, but you do understand them more as people. You forgive them more. You wish you would have known them better. And also, you know, I have to say that as sad as my parents' deaths were for me and for my brother, for all of us, for their grandchildren, they were very sad. That was very pleasing to see. And it sounds like a contradiction, but, you know, it was, it was lovely to see how much it meant to my brother's children and mine. But, you know, they did die. They were both 87 when they died. And, and it, there's a difference between seeing a life cycle lived is sad, but it's not tragic. You know, it's not people dying young in accidents or by, you know, with brutal diseases. You know, they, they did live extraordinary lives and they had as many years as anyone can hope for. So one of the hardest things, I mentioned this because you said you, you heard the book in the car. One of the hardest things were recording the audiobooks, which I did in Spanish and in English, because, you know, reading, rereading, and then when it went out to publishers, there was a, a little bit of editing and back and forth and correcting proofs. And so there was a point where I was so done with the book, I just couldn't face it anymore. And then they said, oh, you're going to do the audiobooks. And I said, oh, yeah, I love audiobooks, because I do. But then when you're in there, you've got to live it again. And there's a director in your ear that says, 
have you done audiobooks? I have actually. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's much more work than people think and they won't let, they won't let you off the hook. You know, sometimes <laughs> I would just sort of like read through something that I didn't want to be reading. And then he or she would say, well, I think that part was a little more intimate. Let's go back and take more time with it. So it was like, oh my God, the audio book. That, that was, that was tough. I have to <laughs> have to go back and live it again. Yeah. yeah. I've been struck by so many authors find that to be super emotional. We're having to live through it by recounting it, right? It, Cause you're, we've already relived it by writing it and now you have to say it. And it's like this whole other immersion. And I, I, don't and, know. I, and I think even if you're reading a fiction book, you know, or all authors are in their fiction. So it, mm-hmm. it, you, you have this sense of, of nakedness. If you really read it, like it should be read, like you feel it. Yeah, that's true. Wow. Well, what is like coming next for you in in life? Like, what is your next professional thing? And like, what are you up to? I am in Richmond, Virginia today. I'm uh, prepping a movie that I wrote called Raymond and Ray about two brothers, two half brothers who have a father that they hated and the father has died. And now they have to deal with the remnants of that. So I'm in pre-production for that. Exciting. My husband is actually in pre-production for a, another movie in, in LA. And I'm like, this is like the most endless process. You know, anyway, so I feel like I'm getting every day his schedule. And now I'm finally seeing what it what that really means. Yeah, <laughs> a movie he's producing or directing? Movie he's producing. Mm-hmm. Movie he's producing. So yeah, it's it's a lot of work. And then of course, in the middle of the COVID protocols and the COVID this. But as I always like to remind myself. When you're a film director, it's grotesque to complain. It's a super privileged profession. So no complaints. Awesome. Just one final question. What advice would you have for aspiring authors? Well, you know, I am really not an author in the sense You are though. (laughs) No, no, but not, you know what I mean? I've written screenplays and pilots for TV. You know, first of all, do it. Sit your ass down and do it. And then, you know, reach the last page of your draft. This is something I say to screenwriters also. The objective of your first draft is to reach the last page. The things that are learned about writing and about your book or screenplay by reaching the last page can only be learned by reaching the last page. You know, so many people start writing something and then when things get tough in the middle of it, they say, oh, I have a better idea for something else. So I would say, you know, get to the end, then you can look at all of it and good, bad, or ugly. It's going to teach you a lot about your rewrite. Good advice. Very good. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Rodrigo. Absolutely. This was, um, Thanks for having I really, me. Really loved it. And thank you for coming on. Well done. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of moms don't have time to read books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.